You're now tuned in to the Better Brain Podcast with your hosts, Miles Sorrell and Dr. Michael Lewis. Dive deep into the world of brain health, the latest in neurobiology, natural health, and nutrition. Stay up to date with groundbreaking research and discover the power of natural products and lifestyle choices. Stay curious and stay informed because when it comes to your brain, knowledge is power. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Better Brain Podcast. This is episode two. My name is Miles Sorrell. I am pursuing a PhD in pharmacology at the University of Padova. And join with me is my co-host, Dr. Mike Lewis. Hey, Miles. Great to be with you again. Thanks let's, so much for joining. this one off. This one, the last one was fun. This one, I think, is going to be even more interesting and exciting. Well, you know, with the Better Brain Podcast, we like to kick things off by discussing breaking news. And just last week, you sent me an article that is really relevant to what we were thinking of talking about today anyway. Today is the serotonin episode. We want to talk about everything serotonin. And uh, Mike, can you tell me a little bit about the article that you forwarded to me? Well, I thought it was kind of interesting as I kind of look up here to the Journal uh, of Cell and... The, uh, the title of it, let me get back up to the top, Serotonin Reduction in Post-Acute Sequelae of Viral Infection. So basically what it's talking about is COVID-19 and how COVID-19 is, and particularly long COVID, uh, has been now associated with low serotonin levels. So they set out to try to explore why that is and what might be the mechanisms, but I think to me, one of the most exciting things is way buried down in the discussion, and you know, is um, so what do you do about it? And I think that's where our conversation will go. Really cool. I mean, reading through the paper, first off, it's a cell paper, so you know it's going to be good. It's one of the most prestigious uh, journals in uh, biomedicine, I would argue. And uh, it also really addresses a critical need here that we're now in the year end of 2023 and we have a number of medical solutions to deal with acute covid but this idea of long covid is still a mystery to many physicians uh, those in the naturopathic and perhaps alternative world have been using some nutraceuticals with some limited success um, but I, I think that there's a real unmet need here so this article that you forwarded uh I think the scientists do a really elegant job of describing this new mechanism of action, this new relevant way in which we can manage long COVID. And uh, I think the other th exciting thing is the, sol the solutions for it are pretty simple and a lot of mainstream media picked it up, right? This article mm -hmm. was, uh, you know, discussed about in NPR, New York Times, et cetera, et cetera, many radio stations. So I think that in and of itself is pretty excited. Yeah, no, absolutely. And, um, you know, sometimes sometimes this, the headlines grab attention for all the wrong reasons. And, but this one, I think, was one of the, the better examples for the right reasons. Uh, you know, we can certainly, you know, I'm not a copywriter and not a newspaper man or anything like that. But uh, you always want to grab attention with the with the with your titles of an article and. 
But again, this, you know, a lot of times it goes in the wrong direction, I think. And we've certainly seen that, especially in nutritional science, where studies are flat out called negative and, you know, harmful and whatever. And there's no such thing, um, particularly in a nutritional study. So to see more of a positive spin on this one, I think, is, is good and refreshing. Absolutely. I agree with you there. So this addresses long COVID in particular. Um, now, as a physician with infectious disease, uh, I guess not specialty, but some expertise oh, more understanding than I, uh, background, yes, can you please uh, highlight some of the key features of long COVID? Well, some of the issues are really um, the one of the biggest ones, and and this paper addresses it pretty uh, pointedly, is that it's a lot like concussions in a way, where you have the brain fog, you're fatigued, you're not thinking clearly. Basically, it's it's a decrement against your brain health. And so that's a big issue, not even getting into the blood clotting issues and, and other potential issues that can, you know, be devastating, literally, um, or causing problems, maybe some of the brain health problems if you've got you know, some blood clots going to the brain, that's what we call stroke. So uh, it may be many strokes, uh, it could be, you know, as opposed to a full-blown stroke. But certainly one of the concerns is things like cardiac, the, the damage that COVID can do to the, to the uh, cardiac system, uh, to the heart and so on, but not just the heart, you know, it's, it's your blood vessels and things like that. So uh, it's one of the reasons why I've always advocated since the beginning of COVID is make sure you take your fish oil because yeah. uh, omega-3s will help keep your blood from clotting too too easily. And mm -hmm. that's important, especially in COVID. Yeah. Well, as we'll soon learn, uh, there may be some other key nutrients that can help us manage some of the uh, post-COVID symptoms or the long COVID symptoms. Because in this study, they specifically, the scientists at uh, Penn had specifically linked long COVID to reduced circulating serotonin levels. And what I want to highlight here is that serotonin, of course, is not just about the brain. I mean, it gets most of its pizzazz as the mood hormone, your happy hormone, if you will. Well, but you know, somebody once, a mentor of mine once said that all targets, uh, the targets of all hormones are the brain. Yeah. Yeah. It does other things, obviously. It depends on whether you're talking about whether testosterone or growth hormone or thyroid or serotonin or dopamine, you know, the neurotransmitters. But ultimately, all hormones have a target in the brain. Yeah. I mean, serotonin is incredibly fascinating because among its many activities, it serves activities as a hormone and as a neurotransmitter. It has paracrine and autocrine functions. Um, but, you know, it gets most of its attention, especially in relationship to mood and depression. But 80 to 90% of the body's serotonin is produced within the gut, where it mm -hmm. serves as a hormone and a neurotransmitter in the gut. I mean, you mentioned the, uh, the platelets as well, the hypercoagulability in, in the blood and some of the issues that people are having with blood flow and post-COVID. Uh, serotonin is stored within platelets. So, you know, we're hitting on a couple of key unifying features here. I mean, one of my favorite factoids about serotonin is that when they were first researching the compound in the 30s and 40s, you know, they found this uh, molecule 
in an extract of enterochromaffin cells, and they called it enteramine. Uh, and then, oh, it was, you know, 10 years later, they realized, oh, wait, that's serotonin. And where does the name serotonin come from? It comes from uh, serum tonifier, serum va vasoconstrictor. So in the early part of, of the 1900s, they weren't even thinking about its neurochemical activity. A lot of its focus was on what it's doing peripherally. So that's the introduction that I wanted to give for kind of the important role that serotonin may have in long COVID. Uh, because the mechanism that the scientists undercover in this paper really starts in the gut, even though they're talking about brain fog. So I don't know if you have any thoughts about that. <laughs> no, absolutely. I mean, so they they make a, a wonderful, coherent argument that it all starts with tryptophan. Um, so serotonin ultimately is derived from tryptophan, sort of, you know, we always think of tryptophan as the post-Thanksgiving turkey, you know, sleepiness and so on. And yes, that is true. That is tryptophan. And, but tryptophan, you know, gets made into a couple of different things, um, you know, serotonin being one of them, but, um, oh my goodness, I just blanked on it. Uh, melatonin. There we go. Um, but melatonin, of course, melatonin we associate with sleep. So um, that's where that sleepiness comes from. So it's um, so one of the arguments that, well, one of the, that's not really an argument. One of the ways they lay it out is that in long COVID, we have a decreased uptake by our cells, our enterocytes in the gut of tryptophan yeah and so if you don't have the the natural uh building block for serotonin getting absorbed in the gut then you're obviously gonna you're running short on on the supply and you're gonna run short on the serotonin right so right. that's that's kind of how they start off talking about it you know and uh as a scientist myself i'm always fascinated by the narrative that the authors of the article described their paper because you know when for people that might not be have ever published a scientific paper before you know i like to think of these things as narratives people seek out to answer a question in science through a number of different steps and one of the reasons why this paper was published in such a good journal is because the scientists did a really excellent job of describing doing experiments for each one of these steps to really answer the question backward and forward. So I just really wanted to discuss how the scientists started with even figuring out that serotonin might be involved. I mean, what they did is a metabolomic screen of 1,540 different individuals with long COVID. So specifically, they took the plasmid, uh, the plasma of, of the patients and just screened for what's going on in their blood? What different molecules mm -hmm. are present in those individuals that have long COVID, those that are people that had COVID and then recovered, and those with acute COVID? And they found that among all of the thousands, hundreds of thousands of different molecules that could be present in the human body, that serotonin was the most significantly downregulated in long COVID. Also in acute COVID, Right. So this is uh, mm -hmm. a feature of, of infection in general. In fact, the scientists then went on in mice to show that any type of viral infection 
can deplete serotonin. So it's not necessarily about COVID itself. It's rather that this, this immune response to viruses is what depletes the serotonin. And uh, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong here, but I, I think that this sounds like a conserved evolutionary mechanism that humans evolved that when they're sick to feel cruddy and, and have fatigue so that you stay in bed and that you don't infect your tribe, right? You don't infect the other cavemen and That's women, good way right? good to look at it. Mm -hmm. So, but then the problem, of course, is if your body cannot resolve that long-term inflammation that's caused by this unresolved viral reservoir, in this case, COVID, uh, then that's going to result in this persistent sickness response that these scientists demonstrated is caused by low serotonin. Well, and, you know, if you want to look at it from that perspective as well, is so what happens when your gut is infected and not working properly is you don't feel like eating. Mm -hmm. And we know that fasting can be a very powerful, I'll call it a medicine, if you will, but fasting can be very powerful uh, in helping our bodies heal. And so, you know, it kind of all fits together that some of the, a lot of these viruses have such a profound effect on the gut itself. And then, of course, you know, I, I, where, where we're all leading, you and I are leading to with this is, of course, the, the gut brain connection. Right. And, and you certainly can't discuss that without talking about the vagus nerve as well. So, yeah. So if you want to lead us into that, because I, I mean, real briefly, what the scientists ultimately found is that uh, so what are, you know, these type one interferons that are part of the classic antiviral response in our immune system downregulates the expression of the transporters for tryptophan. And then the cells take up the tryptophan, they convert it to serotonin. And then they found that having healthy levels of serotonin ensures that the vagus nerve is working properly and that in the presence of this immune antiviral inflammatory response, there's not enough serotonin, the vagus nerve is not working properly. So why is that important? Well, the vagus nerve um, is one of our 12 cranial nerves comes off. It's um, the cranial nerves come off the base of the brain, basically, and each of them has very specific functions, but the vagus, well, they're all unique. But the vagus nerve is, you could argue, maybe the most unique. It's got both efferent and afferent pathways, so it it it's a it's a four lane highway in both directions, um, you know, uh, providing information and also um, allowing for say peripheral stimulation. So it's it's a two way highway between the gut and the brain. But the vagus nerve. Uh, it, it said that Vegas comes from the, the Latin meaning the wanderer and the vagus nerve, you know, when you have your cranial nerves, you've got two sets, you've got a set on your left and a set on your right. Um, and so you've got two vagus nerves, really. We always just call it the vagus nerve, but it's really two. And it goes, touches everything from, you know, it goes down through your neck, touches your, the baroreceptors and your carotid arteries and help, you know, measuring and, affecting in both directions right listening to and affecting your blood pressure and then it continues on down and it touches your lungs and it touches your heart and so it and again in both directions feedback as well as 
stimulating, if you will. And then ultimately it spreads throughout the gut. And it, so it's really is that four six lane divided highway between the gut and the brain. And one of the things that I think is fascinating about the vagus nerve, in my opinion, from a, from a clinical standpoint is can we stimulate the vagus nerve? And there's implantable, literally surgically implantable vagus nerve stimulators, which I'm not a particularly big fan of. Um, not that I've ever seen one or had any experience with them, but it just seems a little invasive to me. But the external stimulators that you could literally put on your neck, uh, right alongside your carotid artery, and you can electrically stimulate the vagus nerve. But you know what the best way is to stimulate your vagus nerve? The easiest one everybody can do? Miles? Uh, if I were to take a guess, it's uh, some deep breathing exercises. Ab absolutely, right? affects your lungs, but, you know, doing good, deep, meditative type of breathing can absolutely have a, a major effect on your vagus nerve tone, and that's going to affect both sides of the highway. So I love the idea that if, so since the scientists had shown that restoring serotonin levels uh, could positively impact the vagus nerve, which then positively erases a lot of the detriments of the cognitive de deficits in, in long COVID, then the question becomes, do we even need any you know fancy medications? Is it possible to do deep breathing to, uh, or other, you know, some of these other vagus uh, nerve tonifying techniques to improve the symptomatology of long COVID? I... <laughs> I guess this it's is a, a little, to, to be answered, right? We don't know yet. Yeah, it's there. The short answer would be yes, I believe that's possible in theory. In practice, it's much, much more difficult because how long are you doing deep breathing? How much are you doing? I mean, I've, I can tell you, uh, you know, numerous cases, for example, if you're getting a dental procedure, for example, that's really uncomfortable, the best thing you can do is focus on your breathing. And when you focus on your breathing, it decreases your pain uh, or increase your pain tolerance, if you will. Uh, but you can certainly decrease your pain. Um, you know, I've spent enough time on the sidelines of different sports and, you know, a kid gets hurt on the football field and you go out there and I don't care whether his knees bent over backwards or broken leg or whatever. The first thing I always did was grab his face mask, stare at him nose to nose and say, you need to breathe <laughs> and take some deep breaths, three deep breaths with me. And just the amount of just three good deep breaths doing it with somebody calms that whole overdrive of uh, the nervous system, you know, that I've been injured and, I, you know, you, you, you lose your breath. And so it can have a profound effect. And I'll just finish up. That's, that's like one huge one, but, um, you know, how you can help control pain and ultimately really focus. But one of the, one of the more interesting things I've done in the last couple of years was, uh, I won't go into the details, but I was somewhere in Europe and, uh, a, good friend of a cousin of mine uh, is a breathing expert. She's got a PhD in neuroscience 
uh, and she's kind of given that all up to basically uh, teach breathing exercises. That's literally what she does for a living. She does really well with it. And she put my cousin and I through a half hour breathe, deep breathing exercise. And it was fascinating when you really, really focus on that, what you feel after 10 minutes, after 20 minutes, even after 30 minutes when you're done. Really cool. Yeah. I mean, of course, the vagus nerve is part of our parasympathetic nervous system. So that calming effect you know, when we engage the parasympathetic nervous system, we're able to shut down the fight or flight response and engage some of that rest or digest uh, effectively instead. Absolutely. Yeah. So, uh, but I mean, again, this paper underscores the importance of serotonin in all of this uh, pathway. Um, actually, there, there are a couple of other kind of little nuggets of uh, facts hidden within the paper that I thought also were quite telling. Um, one of them that I wanted to touch upon was this idea that in their metabolic screen, they not only found that uh, serotonin was low in the bloodstream of long COVID patients, they also found that uh, kynorenic acid was high. And so you start to mention the serotonin-melatonin connection. And, uh, you know, all of these compounds in our body, when we absorb amino acids, they get converted into what it is that they get converted into. In the case of tryptophan, it undergoes conversion uh, first into 5-HTP and then into 5-HT, otherwise known as serotonin, 5-hydroxytryptamine. Um, and then uh, serotonin can get converted into melatonin. But if you rewind the steps a little bit backwards, tryptophan can also get converted uh, under certain conditions in the body to kynorenic acid. And under certain inflammatory conditions, a lot of that tryptophan can actually be uh, robbed of its ability to go down the serotonin pathway and instead go down this kynorenic acid pathway. Now, in this paper, they found that blocking kynorenic acid synthesis did not restore the mechanism that this really did have to do with uh, um, tryptophan to serotonin uh, absorption rather than conversion. But I thought it was an interesting fact nonetheless um, well, it's one of those things that makes it a much stronger um, manuscript yeah. and why it was got to be published in such a prestigious journal is because they did look at those different pathways to rule them in or rule them out. Yeah, but I think kynorenic acid, you know, outside of the long COVID conversation could have a lot of potential use when we start to talk about serotonin and depression. Right, because I'm wondering about what are the lifestyle causes of serotonin depletion in depression or mood issues. Now, I say that with the caveat that the monoamine theory of depression is kind of on shaky ground. There are some people that say, oh, of course, low serotonin is related to depression. And then there are other scientists that say, no, serotonin actually has nothing to do with depression. Maybe the answer is somewhere in the middle. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I mean, this is this idea that, uh, you know, especially someone that like me that's always interested in lifestyle and dietary and nutraceutical interventions, that if you're consuming a lot of inflammatory foods, omega-6 rich foods, cheeseburgers, ding-dongs, Twinkies, blah, 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 that you're going to be steering 
the biosynthesis of tryptophan away from the serotonin pathway and instead towards this inflammatory state driven by kynorenic acid. And that perhaps taking anti-inflammatory supplements or lifestyle behaviors can help to reverse that, you know, I mean, if we think about water flowing down, you know, a forked river or something, if one side's dammed up, you know, what, what do you do about that? And if one, if one side of the river, there's a village that people need the water there or something, you know? Mm -hmm. So I think that that could be part of uh, the conversation as well. Um, I mean, inflammation is, of course, not just linked to this long COVID story. Uh, although, again, the scientists actually found that this viral, antiviral kind of uh, response in the gut triggered the loss of the transporters and that blunting the activation of NF-kappa-B, this master regulator of inflammatory responses, helped to restore the activation or the, the transport of tryptophan in, into serotonin. Makes me also think that supplements such as curcumin that block NF-kappa-B should also be essential for anyone that's looking to boost their serotonin. Right, and you know, an, another um, supplement, if you will, that you and I are quite familiar with that also blocks NF-kappa-B is CBD, cannabidiol. And, uh, well, don't get me started on that. Actually, by all means do, because, you know, uh, separately from, I mean, the scientists that I talked to about CBD, like some of the ones that were really involved with uh, discovering what it does, they say it does everything. Maybe that means it really does that or it does nothing at all. Because, we're, or, you know, it, you look at all this, this long list, eye-wateringly long list of all these targets that CBD impacts in the body. Because aside from NF-kappa B, uh, this master regulator of inflammation response, CBD was also shown to plug into some of the serotonin receptors as direct agonists uh, and help to rewire the brain cells to then mm -hmm. promote an anti-depression activity. So... Well, that reminds me yes. of, of something else. I want to see if I can pull it up while I'm thinking about it. Um, I may not be able to, but um, but just all the potential different things that could interact with the serotonin uh, receptors. I've, I've got a particular slide that I would love to find and even screen share if I could find it quick enough. But um, but I, I think it's um, we'll put it in the I show notes. I'll put it in the show notes. Yes. Okay. <laughs> Might take me a while to find it, but um, well, you know, I'll I'll eventually get there. What is the content of the slide? Uh, <laughs> all the different things. It's a slide that looks like one of those, um, uh, you know, a, a diagram of the Pentagon. You know, where they're just everywhere. It's um really focuses on the ethanolamides, the uh, acyl glycerols, acyl um, serotonides, uh, uh, serotonins, um, just it kind of this massive slide that encompasses a ton of different things. 
Um, I said it, it's hard to explain without actually showing what it what it turns out to be. So going back to one of the previous thoughts that I brought up regarding the relationship between serotonin and depression is this big question of what is it really doing? Where some scientists are saying that we have this theory of depression that if serotonin's low, you're more likely to be depressed. And then there are other people saying, no, there are other reasons for that. And one of the things that a lot of scientists point to that are against this idea that serotonin is what's driving depression or the lack of serotonin is driving depression is the fact that when you take a SSRI, a selective serotonin reuptake inhibitor drug, that mm -hmm. it doesn't work immediately. Right. They have this it has this therapeutic lag of usually about two weeks uh, before the patient starts to see an effect of treatment. So there are other mechanisms that psychiatrists and scientists are trying to evaluate in order to understand where serotonin fits into this. One of the theories that I've heard, um, I don't know if this tracks with uh, what you understand, is that when we take the SSRI drugs, that what they do is, in fact, over time, stimulate the production of BDNF. And that then causes the brain cells to rewire. And it's the rewiring activity rather than the elevation of serotonin in the synapses that comes from consumption of SSRIs that actually causes the antidepressant activity of the SSRI drugs. And you want me to comment on that <laughs> i just was wondering if that was something that you've come across or if uh um, go ahead what what were you please, gonna say no uh by all means no you know you caught me still looking for that damn powerpoint slide <laughs> <laughs> you were on a roll so i just let you go okay we can uh, have the, um, the, you know, the, the idea, you know, so the SSRIs, you know, can take a couple weeks to to really have an effect. Um, you know, that's one of the reasons why some people believe that the SSRIs are not really clinically uh, relevant or do what they actually say they're supposed to do is because um, if you're blocking certain enzymatic processes, which most pharmaceuticals do, you generally get a response pretty quickly. Uh, psychiatric drugs are kind of in a world of their own. It's, uh, we, now that's starting to change, I think, and looking at it, uh, genetically, we can, you can take a genetic profile of somebody and figure out what psychiatric medicines would they respond to more than others? So, right. So you get put on, um, you know, this SSRI and you don't really, or after a month or two, you're not really getting the effect that you, you're, you think you're supposed to be getting, but of course it's multifactorial when it's psychiatric. So they put you, they change you to a different one and then maybe they go to, um, a different class of ones. And then, you know, there's just psychiatric medications are, you know, when you have an infection, you have a strep throat, you played it out and you tested against antibiotics. We, we have nothing any remotely similar to that for psychiatric medicines. It is literally 
a try um, a trial by fire type of thing with with SSRIs and and most psychiatric medicines, or a lot of them, maybe not most, but that may be a little overstating. Well, you know, I think it does kind of lend some credibility to this idea that low serotonin is not everything that has to do with depression, and that instead various researchers are coming up with novel strategies to target depression instead, um, some of which have to do with modulation of glutamate. Um, mm -hmm. Of course, ketamine recently has gotten quite popularized as a compound that can be used to target depression. Ketamine, by blocking one of the major glutamate receptors, the NMDA receptor, uh, of course, that in and of itself has recreational and dissociative activities. But the reason why that might work kind of goes back to that inflammation thing that we were talking about before. When our brain cells, we, last episode we talked about the microglia, and when we have this low-grade kind of inflammation, the microglia in the brain can trigger this sort of low-grade release of glutamate, which has this excitatory kind of effect. And that causes, uh, you know, that sort of low-grade overexcitation prunes the neurons over time. They're not able to form connections as well. People feel anxious and sensitive when there's too much glutamate. Think about people that are sensitive to MSG or to aspartame. Both of those work on uh, the NMDA receptor. So by blocking the NMDA receptor with ketamine or with some other compounds that are starting to be developed, it might somehow protect the brain cells from this low-grade glutamate response that might be one of the new culprits involved with depression. Who knows? I mean, the other one that they're they're starting to get really uh, into, I mean, let's talk about psilocybin, right? I mean, we could spend a whole episode talking about the uh, serotonergic uh, uh, hallucinogenic drugs like LSD and, and psilocybin. But every day you have new studies coming out showing that even microdosing with psilocybin, uh, taking such a low dose that it doesn't cause you to trip, but you can still receive some type of benefit. And that mm -hmm. is mediated through targeting the serotonin receptor, specifically 5-HT2A receptor. So you look like you want to say something. <laughs> no, no, it's, I, I was pulling up something on my uh, on the computer screen just just behind the camera so okay <laughs> sorry about that if that, no, if that no. threw you off there no no um so I, I just think it's it's really highlighting that there's a real involvement somehow in the serotonin system in depression but perhaps not serotonin the molecule itself if that makes sense uh it does um I, I'll give like the really stupidly brief summary of like, it's the brain. It is complicated. And so much we don't understand. Like I said, I, I'm kind of looking at this one slide that I finally found and it's talking about everything from the, um, from PEA and OEA. You know, I know that you're going to want to get into those sometime in the near future. You know, as opposed to just uh, you know, anandamide, arachidonyl ethanolamide, and two arachidonyl glycerol. You know, so you got the glycerols, but all these fatty acids, not just arachidonic acid, not just DHA or EPA, but all these fatty acids 
run down these same pathways and they impact the serotonin system, the dopamine system. There's the taurines and the serines and the glycines and on and on and on. There's just so much we it's just so complicated. We are just scratching the surface when we talk about the biochemistry of the brain because we're in our infancy trying to understand that. Well said. Really, really well said. Um, so then given what we do know uh, about the brain, uh, you know, whatever sliver of percentage of that which we know out of that which we know that we don't know, um, I mean, what are the natural strategies that we can pursue specifically to boost serotonin? With the caveat that simply boosting serotonin is not enough to cure depression, but in many cases uh, can help people feel better um, with their day-to-day -day general wellness. Um, well, I, I think a lot of it will t eventually take us back to what's now been called the endogenous cannabinoid system. And that's the, the fatty acids that I'm talking about that will go through these, you know, different manifestations, if you will, and interacting with all these different receptors under the umbrella of the cannabinoid system. I, I think that that's where the future is going to really lie in both our understanding, but also our targeting of things. And so what are the ways you can, I'm going to, it's not quite exactly the way it is, but I'll say, what are the ways we can increase our cannabinoid tone, right? And the most powerful two things that you can do every single day of your life to impact your endocannabinoid tone is diet and exercise. You know, just basic good lifestyle medicine eating healthy, eating fresh foods, real foods, not processed inflammatory foods, um, getting regular exercise. And it doesn't mean you're out running a marathon every weekend, you know, getting regular exercise, preferably on a daily basis, even if that means just, you know, you, you work on the fourth floor of a building and you take the elevator up and down. Oh, use the stairs, you know, carry your groceries up and down the stairs. Yeah, all these different things that we could be doing on a regular basis, diet, eating healthy, because diet's probably not the right, you understand when I say diet, but, um, you know, but it's really about eating healthy, a Mediterranean style diet, um, a little more plant-based, not necessarily a vegetarian, vegan diets are not necessarily great for you when you look at the overall system, but a more plant-based, fresh diet and regular exercise. All those things stimulate our endogenous cannabinoid system. And part of that ECS is the serotonin side of things. So like I said, you got the serotonin and the dopamines and the taurines and serines and glycines and, uh, you know, um, ethanolamides and so on. So they're all stimulated by diet and exercise, eating healthy and getting outside and doing the things we should be doing. Just get moving. Yeah. And I want to just add a couple of things to that. Um, specifically on the serotonin side of things, when we expose ourselves to vitamin D from the sun, uh, vitamin D receptor activation by vitamin D 
actually leads to the increase of the expression of the enzyme that helps to convert tryptophan into serotonin. So that's really important. I mean, that, I, did, I did not know that. Oh, I learned something today. <laughs> uh, I mean, you know, I think that that is involved with, you know, seasonal affective disorder. You know, the, oh, absolutely. Yeah. And well, I mean, when I'm, I'm counseling, talking to patients, I, you know, it's like, you know, even if you don't want to exercise or you don't want to go to a gym or whatever, go walk outside, fresh air and sunshine. Um, you know, you get more than just the physical exercise when you go for a walk in the woods, for example. Um, you know, there's just an energy about being out in nature that's irreplaceable, in my opinion. Yeah, there was a study. Uh, I mean, we don't need studies to to describe everything, but uh, you know, there was a study that had shown that um, elderly people that took at least one awe-inspiring—that was the words they used—walk uh, per week had significantly better outcomes when it when it comes to their mental health overall. Uh, that just being among trees, right? Mm -hmm. um, that uh, when the Australians uh, met the uh, Aboriginal people in Australia and the, the tribe said, uh, pointed at the trees and said, the trees are our countrymen, right? Think about what that does for our mental health to be around, uh, you know, in the forest. So, but uh, it's, it's nice to think that there is a direct kind of biochemical or serotonergic uh, effect that might come from being in nature in that regard. And then just mm -hmm. in terms of what you were saying about the diet also, um, we need to make sure that we're getting the right B vitamins, um, having the correct amounts of uh, the coenzyme forms of B12, methyl B12, folate, uh, methylfolate, not folic acid, uh, B6, so on and so on, are really essential in the building blocks for powering up the enzymes that are involved with the biosynthesis of serotonin. And there are certain elements as well that include magnesium and zinc, uh, that are also crucial for healthy mental health, including serotonin metabolism. There's also some herbs that I like to use. I personally have used them before. Uh, Rhodiola rosea uh, is uh, a really great uh, Siberian adaptogen herb. Of course, adaptogens are herbs that help our body adapt, adapt to stress, so they don't work immediately, but they help build us resilience over time. And they actually found that rhodiola has some SSRI like properties. So, you know, I, I like to think that someone that is dealing with long COVID could, you know, follow a completely natural course of action and use nutraceuticals that help to target inflammation, as well as to target the, the serotonin pathway through some of the interventions that we just described and talked about. Well, for, speaking from a clinical point of view uh, and putting together some of the things that you've talked about and taught me today, uh, I find clinically that the most important thing somebody can take when they're struggling either with acute COVID and probably long COVID, but definitely acute COVID, I can't imagine why it would not be helpful in long COVID, is... Mm, significant doses of vitamin D and the, the amounts of vitamin D that I either take myself or recommend a family and friends when they're struggling with COVID are 
log scale times greater than what most people take on a daily basis. And I've just seen it work time and time again. And we know that one of the risk factors for getting COVID or having a worse outcome with COVID is low vitamin D levels in the blood. So it's all of what you're talking about sort of falls together and kind of almost this neat package that maybe we should be focusing on vitamin D. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and I think, again, it really speaks to the fact that all these different pathways are in many ways unified, right? That we have, you know, there's a connection between vitamin D and serotonin. There's a connection between vitamin D and the immune system. Now, thanks to this paper, we, the scientists really carefully, um, describe the connection between the immune system and serotonin. So, you know, I think that we can celebrate in the natural products world for sure when these pathways become triangulated, because uh, I like to think it means better uh, health options for for people that need it. Absolutely. And, you know, so when I'm dealing with patients, my my trifecta, if you will, or, or three pillars are always, you know, eating healthy diet, exercise as we discussed before but what i call the third one targeted nutritional therapy and the real target of targeted nutritional therapy is really the brain and how do we use nutritional therapy to help the brain and sometimes that means helping the gut uh you know it's uh there you can't deal with one without dealing with the other there's a some great there was a great set of studies or study out of, I think, Johns Hopkins a couple of years ago that showed when they damaged the brain, it affected the, in, in experimental animals, they damaged the brain, it affected the gut biome um, in not a good way. And then they reversed it. They damaged the gut biome and looked at the effects, the detrimental effects it had on the brain. So it really kind of goes back to that, that four or six lane or, you know, divided highway that runs between the brain and the gut. And it's not just the vagus nerves, but it's also the floating chemical soup that is in our blood, you know, the different hormones and stuff that target the brain as well as other parts of our body. So, uh, it, again, it's complicated. It sure is. Uh, and we don't really have a very good understanding, but we should never, ever discount the effect of the, the connection between the gut and the brain. Yeah, that's, uh, you know, I think you just... Uh, inadvertently uh, discovered what episode three of the Better Brain podcast is going to be about. So definitely uh, make sure and stay tuned. And so listen in when we discuss uh, that paper that you just mentioned about damaging the brain, affecting the gut and and so on, Um, because there is so much to unravel there. I mean, another freebie as it relates to serotonin is there are microbes within our gut that produce serotonin that produce other neurotransmitters, psychobiotics, they call them, never mind probiotics, right? So I think we'll have to have a, a psychobiotic episode in the very near future. Dr. Lewis says- Well, I look uh, forward to learning yeah. more from you then. Likewise, likewise. Uh, it's been a pleasure. Uh, thanks so much for the discussion today. And uh, folks, thanks for listening to the Better Brain Podcast with uh, Miles and Dr. Lewis.